It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. There was a good man and a righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? They asked. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. Be crucified and rise on the third day. They remembered his words. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us even went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And Jesus said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. The goal of the Bible is to point us to Jesus so that we might come to know God by believing in Him. Jesus is the point of Scripture. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the beginning of her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers His name. 
Every chapter and every verse of this book was written so that we might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the point. He's the message. He is the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And the good news that He, being very God of very God, was born as a man and lived a substitutionary life, died a substitutionary death, and rose from the grave, victorious, so that all those who trust in Him can share in His resurrection life, both now in the short term and in the long term when He returns to make everything new. This is the point of Scripture. Indeed, Jesus is the promised Messiah who died to forgive sins and rose to free his people from death. That's our main idea this morning as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 17 in the first three verses. The main idea is Jesus is the promised Messiah who died to forgive sins and rose to free his people from death. And I'm going to exhort you this morning, it's very simple, that we would behold our God and worship him. That the posture of our souls would be prostrate, bowed down before him, before the majesty of this great, loving, holy God. We'll work through our text in three parts. We'll talk about the goal of Scripture once more, the necessity of the Messiah's death, and the necessity of the Messiah's resurrection. The point being that Jesus is this Messiah, the goal of Scripture, the goal of creation. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we pray that you would meet us now. We come with great expectation. Your word is the word of life. It is what truly sustains us. Indeed, we do not live by bread alone, but by the bread of life. We come this morning hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We come this morning weary, broken, sinners in need of once more hearing that beautiful good news that you love us, that you love bad people so much that you sent Jesus to die for them so that anyone who repents of their good works and trusts in Christ can be saved from judgment. Instead, enjoy your glory and blessing. Lord, thank you for this good news. Pray that you would help us to listen well this morning. Pray that you would help me to speak your words to your people. And ask that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I've prepared. We are dependent upon your Spirit. Pray that you would pour out your spirit now and apply these words to our hearts. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been with us, we have been working through the book of Acts, and it's just a happy providence that we are in chapter 17, uh, and it just so happens to be concerned with the resurrection of Christ on this Easter morning. 
And so this is by God's design, not ours. It's just the next chapter and the next few verses from where we were last week and the week before that and the week before that. But if you haven't been with us, we've summarized Acts this way. It said, in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. We've seen this happen throughout the book. Jesus ascended into heaven where he sits on his throne and from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. When he pours out his Holy Spirit onto the church in Acts chapter 2, they begin to witness to Jesus, just like he said they would in Acts 1.8, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the very ends of the earth. And so they begin witnessing, and we follow that witness. We follow the growth of the word, the growth of the gospel, as it fills up Jerusalem and then spills out into Judea and Samaria. And now it's going to the very ends of the earth. Last week, Paul and his missionary crew were in Philippi. And we saw the conversion of Lydia and of a demon-possessed girl and of the Philippian jailer. This week, they enter into Thessalonica. The pattern will be the same. We're not going to cover the whole section. We'll do that next week. We're just going to do the first few verses. But we'll see this pattern happen again. They will enter in. They will preach the word. Some people will receive it. Some will reject it. And eventually they'll move on to the next city. But look with me at at verse 1. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And so you can see he's following this same pattern. Uh, He and the missionary team, they show up, they go into the synagogue, and they begin preaching the word. Now, based on what happened in the past on the first missionary journey and and what we saw last week in Philippi, remember they they ended up in prison, and what what we know happens next in this chapter, right? There's going to be some riots and some people are going to be mad at him. You have to wonder why they keep following the same pattern. You've heard the phrase, uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? And this seems a little crazy. I mean, just think about it, Paul. Uh, they, imagine you, when you preach the gospel and follow this pattern of Paul, you were chased, scoffed at, stoned, beaten with rods, put in prison, in prison stocks, And imagine uh, limping into the next city with cracked ribs in your chest and scabs on your face and thinking, I'm about to do the same thing over again. The question is, why doesn't Paul change up his approach? The answer is, he understands that it's only the Word of God that can create the people of God. It's only by the power of God's word preached and applied by the Holy Spirit that spiritually dead people can come to life. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of God is the power of God. God created the world and the cosmos by his word. God sustains the world and the cosmos, every molecule, every insect, every person, every planet, by His Word. It's His Word that gives life. It's His Word that sustains life. Paul understands that the power for salvation is in God's Word proclaimed, and so he preaches it. This is why we give ourselves to the preaching of the Word. It's why we give ourselves to expositional preaching. Because we understand that no matter how good a speaker or a preacher, no matter how grand their philosophy or their personality, no matter how creative their ideas and applications, a man's Word can do nothing to bring dead people to life. The most charismatic of speaker, if they speak without the gospel, there's no power in those words. You can come to church and have a million good applications, ten things to do to have a better life, but that won't make you come to life. Only God's word can do that. Only God's word is the power of God for salvation and transformation. And so... We give ourselves to listening to the Word. And so Paul gives himself to preaching the Word at great cost to himself. It's interesting that despite all his suffering, that later he says, not woe to me if I'm persecuted, not woe to me if I end up in prison, not woe to me if I end up shipwrecked, not woe to me if stones come crashing down on my head and I lay almost dead in a pool of my own blood, not woe to me if something bad happens to me, but woe to me, cursed am I, if I don't preach the gospel. He understands that's the mission of every Christian, to preach the gospel, and that it's the word that gives life. Do you understand that? Do we? I'm always always shocked how many Christians think that they ought not use the word of God in their evangelism. I can't use the the Bible when I'm sharing my faith. People don't believe it. That's foolish. It's like like if, um, if somebody, you know, attacked you with a knife and you said, whoa, 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 listen. Listen, pal, this isn't gonna work. Because me, I don't believe in knives. See, likewise, it doesn't matter if they believe in the Bible or not. It still possesses the ability to cut to the heart. And that's how men and women are saved. No one ever believes the Bible until it cuts them to the quick by the power of the Holy Spirit. Use the Bible in your evangelism. This is very simple and non-threatening. Hey, what do you think about spiritual things? What do you think about God? Can I tell you what I think? Hey, would you like to read through the book of Mark with me? Read through the book of Mark with somebody and watch God work. There's power in the word. It brings to life. 
So Paul will give himself to preaching this word. Because it gives life and it points people to Jesus so that they might know God by knowing Him. The Bible is about God from beginning to end. It's about Jesus from beginning to end. From the very jump in Genesis. Genesis 3 points us to Jesus. Because we learn that Jesus is the new and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and gives His righteousness to us. We also know that Jesus is the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 12. Jesus is the new Abraham who leaves his heavenly home in order to secure the promises of God for his progeny. He's also the descendant of Abraham through whom every nation on earth would be blessed. Genesis 22. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who is not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but is truly sacrificed for us. Remember, God says to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. And now we can look at God taking his son up onto the mountain of crucifixion and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. The Joseph narrative we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus of the new Joseph, who is lifted out of the pit to the right hand of power from where he forgives those who betrayed him and saves them from death. Exodus, Jesus is the new Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord as a perfect mediator. Moses mediated an old covenant that was only able to condemn. Jesus mediates a new covenant which gives life. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain to protect God's people from death and from judgment. Jesus is the true bread from heaven The manna who actually nourishes God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, perfectly keeping not just the Ten Commandments, but all 613 commandments from the day of his birth. Jesus is our great high priest who offers his very body as an atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus is the radiance of God. He is the glory of God. He is the very presence of God with man. He is the true and better temple the better cloud and pillar of fire. Or Leviticus, Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that God offered on Calvary on the final day of atonement. And at the same time, he is the scapegoat that is sent out of God's presence into the wilderness on account of the sin that he bore. The whole Levitical system, the whole sacrificial system points to Jesus. Or how about in Numbers? A plague comes upon the people and a snake is lifted up on a pole and the people are told, look in faith and be healed. Likewise, Jesus is like that bronze serpent. And when he was lifted up, people can look to him and find forgiveness and healing. Jesus is the true and better Joshua who leads his redeemed people into the promised land where they will dwell with him forever. He is our conquering warrior, victorious over the powers of sin and death. First Samuel, Jesus is the true and better David who goes out on behalf of God's people and faces a great enemy. He severs the enemy's head from his shoulders and allows his people to share in the spoils of his victory, even though they themselves didn't lift a finger to accomplish it. Or Esther, Jesus is the, is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly palace 
who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Job. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for his stupid friends. Psalms. We just read Psalm 22. Jesus is the one who is forsaken by God for a time on the cross so that those who are found in him might never be rejected. Psalm 53, his blood cleanses us and makes us whiter than snow in answer to David's prayer. Psalm 16, his body doesn't see corruption, but he is raised up by God. Psalm 23, Jesus is the good shepherd who shepherds his sheep, who restores our souls, who leads us beside quiet waters, leads us in paths of righteousness. Proverbs, Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. Jonah, Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm of God's judgment so that we could enjoy the sunshine of God's pleasure and blessing. We can go on and on and on through all the minor prophets, but I think you get the point by now. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus is the goal of Scripture. And if we read the Bible and we don't get to Jesus, then we haven't fully understood it. Jesus is the goal. Scripture is given to us so that we might come to know God by knowing Jesus. And so Paul preaches that word that can give life. God's word, which points to Jesus. He reasons from those scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That he is the hero that we are waiting on. That he's arrived. And so he demonstrates from the scriptures why the Messiah has to suffer. Why the Messiah has to suffer. Why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die. Now there are over 1,000 concrete prophecies about Jesus' coming written over a span of hundreds of years and sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. And so we're going to work through each one of those right now. Why are you laughing? There are many places that Paul could have chose from, and it would be speculative to, to guess where, but I'm going to speculate. I, just, I, I feel like he probably opened to Isaiah 53. 52 and 53. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it to you. Imagine as he's reasoning, this is why the Messiah had to suffer. He, you see, Jesus is that suffering servant that was promised to us in Isaiah. Look, look with me at Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised up, lifted up, and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. Yet we in turn regarded him stricken, 
struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. You can see Paul pointing to this passage and saying, see, Jesus is the suffering servant who bears the iniquities of his people. He says, friends, what God has done has taken your sin and he's put it on the shoulders of Christ. Your rebellion against God has earned eternal punishment in hell. And God takes that damnation and he puts it in the cup of Christ and then Christ, the suffering servant, drinks it dry so that there's only a cup of blessing left for you when you repent of your sin and put your faith in him and follow him. Imagine Paul may have even turned or used his words that he would later write in Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation, that's an atoning sacrifice, in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, what Paul is saying is that God, because of his holy character, is going to deal with evil, must judge and end all evil. And the cross is how God ends evil without ending his people. It's how he proves his justice and justifies sinners. See, all sin has been or will be dealt with. If you are not a Christian, if you are not obediently following Christ with your whole heart and your whole life, then you will deal with your sins. On the last day of judgment, you will be raised up and you will give an account of yourself before God and you will be condemned. And you will rightly be under the wrath of God in hell forever. But friend, if you, if you simply trust in Christ, if you turn from your sin, turn from following your heart and begin listening to God's word, you will have life. Indeed, your sin, the judgment that's due to it, it won't come to you. 
Indeed, your judgment day, when you come to Christ, moves from the last day to Good Friday. If you are in Christ, your judgment has already happened. It's amazing. That means the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to you, eternal condemnation, separation from God, has already happened to you in Christ. That's what it means to be united to Christ in faith. It also means the best thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to you. Seated at the right hand of God in glory. United to faith in Christ. That's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're not a Christian, I implore you, come to this God who loved you and has given himself for you. Love him back with your obedience. Turn from your sin. Trust him. His grace is enough to save you. Grace is simply him giving you the opposite of what you deserve. You and I deserve hell, and he offers to you heaven. Simply need to believe. Turn from your sin. Christian, look to God. Delight in him. Behold your Savior bleeding for you. And bow down and worship. He's worthy. Paul explains that Jesus has to die to forgive our sins. He also explains it's necessary that Jesus, the Messiah, doesn't stay dead. That he rises again. And once more, I think Paul probably, maybe appealed to Isaiah 53. I'm going to start in verse 9 this time. Also, when he's talking about being assigned a grave with a rich man, He's talking about Joseph of Arimathea. We read about him in the introduction. Right? It's a rich man's grave, and it's a rich man who puts him in the grave. And that's, that's how that's playing out. He's assigned a grave with the wicked, crucified, but was with a rich man at his death, Joseph of Arimathea, because he had done no violence and not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. How can this suffering servant, this Messiah who is predicted, prolong his days, see light? How can he be satisfied? How can he receive the many as a portion, the mighty as a spoil? How how can he intercede for them if he's dead? Well, he doesn't stay dead. The Messiah must rise. And Jesus is that Messiah. We might say, well, why 
Why did he have to rise from the dead? Because A, to fulfill scripture. B, to prove that the sacrifice was effective. It was sufficient. Jesus died and had he stayed dead, we don't have a salvation. It wasn't enough. But having paid for sins because he was truly righteous, death had no claim on him. Indeed, like Peter said back in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Psalm 16.10, says, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And then he says in 2.24, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Death is pictured in Acts 2.24, remember, as being in labor with Jesus. It can't hold him back. I'm going to take a couple extra minutes because I can't resist sharing this illustration. I think it's great. But remember, when we went through Acts 2, I talked about how when Chelsea gave birth to Owen, things happened real fast. Like, we were in the room. They didn't think that she was dilated all the way. The nurse didn't believe she was in labor because she was just like this quiet little mouse. They came in, they did their thing, and they were like, oh, it's baby time. We're going to go get our stuff. And they left me, me, in a room with a pregnant woman about to give birth by myself. And Chelsea, I remember, just all at once, baby's coming right now. And so I... Uh, I, being a manly man and a guy that I am, I girded up my loins, I rolled up my sleeves, and I yelled, <laughs> Help! She's crowning! And literally like five seconds before the baby came out, like they tagged me out and went in. And, and upon further review, I should have just delivered the baby and taken the credit, right? Maybe save some money. The point though is, is if, I've never been in labor, but if you've ever been in labor, ladies, or you've been around someone in labor, when baby is coming, baby is coming. You can't stop it. This is the image you have in Acts 2.24. When Jesus goes down into death, death is like in labor pains with Jesus. It can't hold him back because death has no claim on him. The wages of sin is death. Jesus is sinless and he's paid for sins. And so death is trying, it's like I'm trying to hold him in, but I've got to push him out. There's no claim. Jesus satisfied the law. His sacrifice was sufficient to pay for sins. Therefore, death has no claim on him. And so he resurrected to fulfill the scriptures. He resurrects to prove that his, sa- his sacrifice was satisfying to God. And he resurrects to guarantee our resurrection, to defeat death. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this. Verses 16 through 22. Paul writes this. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The resurrection is the completion of the crucifixion. 
Without it, we are lost. Love how Spurgeon said it. The dying Christ secures for us our justification and the risen Christ will see that we get it. Love that. The the doctrine of Jesus' bodily crucifixion and bodily resurrection is of first importance. Paul says so at the beginning of Acts chapter 15. This is a first order doctrine because this is how we are saved. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. I'm not much of a farmer, but do you know how first fruits work? I guess. Like there's part of the crop that comes up first and you harvest it and then the rest of the crop comes later. You see, Jesus has resurrected already as the first fruits. And we who have faith in him will be made like him. Just as we died in Adam, we will be raised in Christ. It's amazing. It's like this picture if death were a field and we are all planted in it. Jesus has risen up out of that field and upon his return, that field is just going to explode apart with resurrection life. It's amazing. Death does not have the last word. Indeed, right now we, we still feel death's sting. People die. They're suffering in the world. But death has been defanged. Death's days are numbered. And there is coming a day where we do sing to death, 1 Corinthians 15, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The answer is there is no victory for death because Jesus has risen from the dead, forgiven his people's sins. This is paramount. Jesus is of the first fruit. We have to have a Messiah who dies and forgives our sins and raises from the dead to free us from death. That's why he, he raises from the dead to free us from death, if you're taking notes. Uh, is to free us from death. We have to have him, a, a Messiah who forgives sins and frees us from death. Otherwise, we don't have any salvation. You understand that, that Satan understood this. Like He tried to stop Jesus from getting to the cross. From the very get-go. Right? He, he inspired Herod to kill a bunch of infants. Why? So that he could kill Jesus before he got to the cross after living a perfect life. He offered Jesus in the wilderness a worldly crown. You can have all of this. Let's worship me. Offered him a, a crown without a cross. Remember, when Simon Peter tells Jesus that he shouldn't go to the cross, what's Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Satan knew that Jesus' death on the cross would mean his ultimate eternal death and the salvation of God's people. He didn't want him to get there. On Good Friday, Satan was not rejoicing. Satan and demons were mourning. On Good Friday, death began to have the miserable pains of labor as Jesus was down in the earth. On Good Friday, evil was crying and weeping because it knew that soon we would not be weeping anymore because Jesus is going to wipe every tear from the eye. Indeed, he's going to make everything sad untrue. 
going to restore the world. Once Jesus resurrects, everything, everyone who has faith in him is going to experience the same glorious resurrection. Friends, on Good Friday, death knew that Jesus was going to burst forth from its wretched womb. And like him, so too shall we. Church, there's a resurrection coming for us. There's nothing wrong with you. No illness, no pain, no sorrow that a good resurrection won't fix. And it's coming. He's coming soon. So we ought to bow down and worship this God. This is why we gather every Lord's Day. Because Jesus has secured our salvation. We come together to soberly remember the cost of our salvation on the cross and to joyfully celebrate the fact that he has risen from the dead. Friends, let us worship this mighty king together. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over the earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are given to Jesus. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say. Rejoice. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your love for us is not abstract but tangible. That your love for us is manifest in the flesh and blood of Jesus. Thank you that you have drank damnation dry so that we might drink the cup of blessing, that we might drink the living water offered to us in Christ. Jesus, we thank you for dying and rising so that death will not have the last word. Thank you that you have risen so that death might die. We thank you for the salvation given to and available to all those who repent of sin and follow you or all those who put their faith in you and believe. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.